Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast of infinite nothingness where time has ceased to exist. My name's Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hi, Corey. We are back after our summer break, and I'm reliably formed, Steve. It's now September, although we last, I think, spoke together back in July, which in COVID time, I think, is about three and a half months. I was going to say three and a half years. Well, if you think that the, the last month has been long, the next three months, so the next season, if you like, of Not Enough Champagne between schools reopening and the Not Enough Champagne quiz at the end of the year, it promises to be no less exciting. We've identified four horsemen of the apocalypse, bringers of cluster with us, if you will, and we're going to discuss those four jolly little horsemen and the disasters they made before us and Boris Johnson's government after Dave Depper's jaunty little number. the apocalypse as we said steve the bringers of cluster wallace that boris johnson's government is going to at least attempt or pretend to deal with over the next three months so the global pandemic um there's the economy side of it there's brexit you remember brexit i do remember brexit how's that going not great and the other one is well it's basically just general incompetence which can be personified at the moment by gavin williamson doing a u-turn forever uh, in endless circles and a lot of these are sort of interlinked let's start with the global pandemic first there's a, a bit of a mismatch isn't there between the messages that boris johnson's government in london's putting out and all the leaders across the uk are as well local leaders and leaders of other national parliaments so should we go with local lockdown stuff first because i think this week uh, in the Greater Manchester area, you've had places like Trafford, where the government has said they want to end the restrictions. But Andy Burnham, who he's the mayor of the North, I believe, he said that actually residents there should continue adhering to the um, lockdown restrictions that were sort of in place before they were eased, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. And there's there's been a kind of a fair amount of confusion when it comes to government statements um, when it comes to the local lockdowns, I think you've got areas of the of the UK again up in the north. I can't remember which which town it was now, but um, the government's official position was that the lockdown was ending, and so all of the business opened up on the day that the lockdown was ending, and then on the very on the very same day everybody got opened up again. They were then told actually no lockdowns continuing because they've realized that actually the data did not support the lockdown ending because the the R right was 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 too high in the area. So you have once again with the government a continuation of just poor communications in relation to uh, the coronavirus and the response, which is just resulting in a lack of clarity so people don't know what to do and even when the government is kind of saying oh no we know what you need to do you can go back to back to normal or whatever there is a definite kind of undercurrent of 
they're they're not focused necessarily on the on on you know lowering the R rate or the R number. They're focused on trying to get people back into offices in city centres because they're concerned about economic damage or kind of like what what will happen to city centres if it becomes too normalised for people working from home, which is well you kind of have this this situation where you have people like uh, Andy Burnham saying no, stay in stay in lockdown. Like there's there's no reason for you to actually go out, um, go back to work and things. When the government is saying no, no, everybody needs to go back now. I suppose that shows exactly how these four horsemen are linked because you're right, the the pandemic stuff at the moment is very much inextricably linked to the economy stuff. Yeah. Uh, there, I don't know if you saw it, there's an interesting graph that plotted countries on a chart in terms of excess coronavirus deaths mixed with GDP falling. And the UK, as I remember, was on the, the top right of that curve. We had both the biggest fall in GDP and the most excess deaths. We'll, we'll sort of talk about the economy in a second, but you're right, a lot of the talking government is about how to get the economy back going. And equally, amongst a lot of people on the centre-right, who the same people who want to get the economy back going also seem to be the same people against wearing masks and social distancing measures, which actually could lead to some some form of return i think we've probably going to discuss this before but there is a definite overlap on those kind of two areas as you say um and and there's also kind of like an overlap in between the people who are just necessarily not taking um, the situation as seriously as they otherwise might do because like if you remember a few i can't even remember when it was now time has become one immutable blob um, in the middle of a uh, in the middle of the pandemic, um, but like Michael Gove got caught going into somewhere without a face mask on and, and things like that, it never really blew up as a as a story because it was just like oh he just popped out, forgot his face mask, um, and uh, bought something from Cafe Nero or whatever. I think about Pret. I think it's it might, it was one... maybe it's just that Pret seems to have become quite emblematic. As yeah, we talked about in the economy section. <laughs> But um, but yeah, so you've got like people like Gove who aren't necessarily taking it as seriously as they could. Should you've got the whole Dominic Cummings affair? You definitely have a strain, certainly within the government, and most definitely within kind of like the commentariat on the right of individuals who are not taking this the the health aspects as seriously um, as they are taking uh, other areas, and it's it's just leading to a confused approach when it when it comes to the coronavirus as shown by the different responses that are being developed in different areas and different regions in response to local lockdowns and, and, and things like that it all it's all just very confused because i don't think anybody's actually got a grip of it that confusion as we said it's sort of you can see it interplaying on, on a very local level it's also playing out within the different devolved governments in the UK as well. And you've seen that in particular over flights this week. There's a sort of revolving door, it seems, where the UK government adds or takes away countries on their flight list or says, you know, if you're in this country, you've got to fly back by a certain date, otherwise you've got to uh, quarantine for 14 days. In Portugal, for instance, uh, this week, almost every single UK country had different mechanisms of different dates for when you had to to fly back. So as of Friday, if you were arriving in Wales from Portugal, you had to quarantine for 14 days as of 4am 
on Friday morning. If you were arriving in Scotland from Portugal, then you'd have until Saturday to wait, and then you'd have to quarantine for 14 days. Uh, whereas if you were coming to England and Northern Ireland from Portugal, you'd be able to not, you wouldn't have to quarantine and you'd be able to go about your business fine. It's not quite one of the horsemen of the apocalypse. It's more a sort of pony of doom, I suppose, is the impending uh, breakup of the union and the fact that we've got Scottish Parliament elections in 2021, which may well lead to an SNP majority and an almost inexorable call for another Scottish independence referendum, which, if you look at the polls, is looking a bit dodgy if you're a, a fan of unionism. This feels very much a problem, doesn't it? But, but both in terms of confused message communications, but also in terms of having a coherent UK-wide approach. Yeah, it, it really is. I'm like, you would think that there would be a kind of like a centralised response to these sorts of issues, because fundamentally, if we're saying Portugal is um, a problem area because of outbreaks in, in, in the country and therefore there is a risk that people could be spreading the uh, the virus when, when they come back, you are going to end up, you, you should be basically saying, okay, this is the situation. We are all agreeing that we need to install a 14-day quarantine period for anybody coming back from Portugal from this date. Instead, what we have is every country seemingly having its own uh, approach to it, which can only really come about because the central government uh, under the Tories and, and Boris Johnson is failing to actually coordinate the, the different nation states in a, in a meaningful way. Now, don't get me wrong, it would not shock me at all to discover that actually the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon had decided they were going to be a bit more cautious, either out of genuine, you know, wanting to be cautious on these things, but also an ability to say, we're being more cautious, look how terrible the Tories are, um, they're putting everybody's lives at risk, and all of the, the political kind of benefits that could come from that. But at the same time, there should be, like... Uh, agreements between the, the between the nation states as to how this this happens. So we should be getting reports, um, in effect, from something like Sage, basically say this is the recommendation. Johnson is meeting up with Sturgeon, Drakeford, uh, whoever it is that's in charge of Northern Ireland at the moment. I know they're active again, but I think it's we're so perfectly English we can't even I know to name it. How perfectly <laughs> English? Yeah, at the very least put out joint statements they can basically say hey we are doing this differently and 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 here's why so that yes there might be some confusion but it might be very different because it could be actually quite feasible that let's say the reason scotland is um having a different response is that actually all of the planes coming to scotland are from a different region of Portugal, which is more in, uh, more likely to be infected, or has got more of an outbreak. Or say Wales or England, they've got from different regions or, or whatever. So maybe you can kind of do that and make that as a case for why things are different. But you need to actually tell people that, and you need to actually have a centralised message coming from everybody that yes, whilst they are different, we are still working towards the same end, and we don't have that at all. So it just looks like the government is. Uh, running around like a headless chicken, not sure what's going on. And as a result, the Scottish, Welsh and, and Northern Irish are having to pick up the pieces and do their own thing. 
Another thing you could do that has been suggested that a few other countries are doing is airport testing as well. I feel like we ought to know, given that constitutional affairs are very much our political hobby horse of choice. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing that the reason why the different UK governments have these are able to make these different decisions is because health is maybe one of those devolved aspects or public health is one of those devolved aspects uh, and therefore it's it's essentially their responsibility but it does seem there's been a, a failure in in the Johnson government anyway to engage meaningfully yeah. with not just local council leaders I mean announcing lock, local lockdowns but from Twitter the fact that a when, when the government remember they're doing those daily press conference in the early funny days of lockdown and so a lot of the announcements were happening at five o'clock which is usually when most public health teams had already gone home from the office but then we're having to do an extra bunch of stuff without having been consulted on it first we sort of hinted about the economy before and, and about pret i actually i i agree with something that aaron bastani tweeted um, I, I don't know how quite how I feel about this, but I suppose. Say, I, 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 are you well? Are you feeling all right? I don't have any symptoms as of twelve fifty seven on Saturday, um, <laughs> but but what what he said was that the same people who said that millennials were unable to save deposits and buy houses because they were buying smashed avocado sandwiches and coffees at uh, various chain takeaway stores are the same people now saying they have to buy their smashed avocado sandwiches at these chain stores so that they can re keep the economy going and i thought that was actually quite apt yeah no it, it, it really is um there is a definite kind of disconnect between general view that's held of millennials and generation z or zoomers or, or whatever they're being called zoomers um, is that a thing yeah zoomers yeah um, apparently that's, that's not a term. generational thing though surely uh, i don't know like it, it, I've, I've heard it using kind of like to discussing um kind of like people who are like the generation like under us yeah just because it rhymes honestly these people I, yeah i know but yeah so you, you definitely have that kind of disconnect between certain people that that millennials and, and in particular have been wasting their money on these things but also we need to get back and spend all our money on these things because uh it's the only way the economy will function what's um what's quite interesting um is that you've got um uh, the government and a lot of the kind of like right-wing commentary are bringing up threat um, as a kind of like the, the emblematic example of a business that, that needs support and, and things like that. Um, because obviously there's prets everywhere um, on, on most city high streets and probably quite a few town high streets as well. And uh, they're saying, yeah, if we don't, if we don't uh, all go back to work um, to get the economy going back to, to normal uh, as it was before, you know, all of these places are going to close down. But actually, Pret themselves have basically said, yeah, we probably will have to change things up um, if, if things don't go back to normal. But from our end, that just means we change our focus. We're not putting four or five Prets in the middle of the city centre in Birmingham. We're going to put one in Harborn. We're going to put one in Northfield. We're going to put one in um, Erdington and, or town high streets or like local high streets where people are actually more likely to be. Is it disruptive for Pret? Absolutely. Is it the, the end of the world for Pret? Almost certainly not. Um, and they seem to be a lot more calm-headed about this than uh, than the government and the commentariat are. 
um, because they they seem to be thinking that this is going to be an absolute disaster of of, of of all kind of ethical proportions for retailers. And it's like, well, yeah, there there will almost certainly be some kind of like churn and and, and some damage there, but actually it's the places that are going to be able that are going to get most affected by it in all likelihood are the big commercial chains like prep like greg's and they're going to be able to relocate they're going to be able to move where they are to find the to follow the customers they're actually probably going to be all right the people that are actually going to be affected by this the most are your um, commercial landlords who own all the city blocks and tenements in in the middle of city centres, which are rented out for office space. That's who's actually going to be taking the significant hit here, because at the end of the day, if I'm a business owner and I've realised, well, I can operate my business quite well, actually, with people working from home. Yeah, we still need an office. Yes, we still need people to be able to come in. But we don't need as big an office. We can downsize. Like, that's not a problem for us, which means suddenly a lot of these places are making less money, which in turn, that seems to be feeding an awful lot of the panic um, in relation to the government's response when it comes to the economy. I read an interesting thing online a, a week or so back, which basically said so much of their response is driven by the fact that London itself is going to be facing quite a difficult challenge if if, if this happens, because so much of London's or, uh, or a significant part, rather, of London's economy is based off of high commercial rents and, and, and things like that, which if, London, if that affects London, then there might be wider spread impacts and like it's just not a good look for the government. So that might be what's kind of driving them is that they're so familiar with the situation in London that they're kind of assuming all of the rest of the, the uh, country is going to be exactly the same. And it is to a degree. Certainly Manchester, Birmingham, I don't know, Leeds, some of the bigger cities are going to have some issues in regards to this, but not nowhere near as badly. And um, it would be feasible if you had a government that was looking to actually support them properly to make that transition. Um, we don't have a government that will be looking to support them properly, so they won't be able to make that transition properly. Um, but uh, that's on the Conservatives rather than it being a inherent thing in and of itself yeah i think a big part of this is the government wanting things to go back to normal as in back to the way it was when that isn't really going to happen Uh, that massive shift to people working from home people realizing that you're able to work from home and not lose too much productivity that is a massive shift and one that's going to happen regardless of what the government does. One of the things that the Johnson government talked about trying to do was levelling up and at least rhetorically try to make the point that they they want to not just see all the prosperity of the UK happening in London, they want to spread it to different local areas. I suppose the problem is the scale, isn't it? It's one thing to say, well, yes, we want to sort of not concentrate our economy on the city of London and make sure that instead we boost little local high streets and town centres. Um, there's a stat in one of the FT articles looking at the new economy, which says there's more prets on Borough High Street than there are in the whole of Wales. Yeah, I think there's eight or something. But as you say, the massive knock-on is office space and that rent and and just things like revenue that local councils might get from the office space and business rates. And that's what I'm talking about when you, when you say that the government need, would need to assist um, in some form if they were being competent. Business rates are one of the, the few tools that they actually have of generating money for themselves uh, rather than being reliant on government handouts. 
Um, so when you take take that away, it's a potential thing. Well, everything's been cut to the bone already. So well, one of the things that the government has failed to do so far is to keep its word to fully fund councils for the full cost of yeah. coronavirus uh, and the extra services that council have to put on in terms of, say, social care, things like that. The other big economy thing, uh, which I believe is what the economists call it, is on jobs and the fact that at the end of October, the furlough scheme is meant to wind down. Rishi Sunak, your Tory pick for mover and shaker of 2020, mm-hmm. proven a very astute pick, I have to say. He seems to not want to extend the furlough scheme, unlike, say, countries like Germany. I think Angela Merkel's extended it for two years in Germany. And if support begins to be withdrawn by the end of October, the economic situation could look incredibly grim when you bring up Sunak, um, the other kind of like headline policy that I think we've we've kind of discussed before, and the support scheme to kind of like hire more people, um, get, um, I think it's meant to be for younger people getting back into jobs and launched now. But yeah, again, we're seeing a massive example of how the seemingly, at least up front, the government isn't actually kind of making this work for smaller businesses, because in order to actually kind of take advantage of the programme at the moment, now, you will be other businesses will be able to do this probably through local councils who are going to be running variants of this scheme with some funding but from the get-go you can only take uh, advantage of this scheme if you're hiring 30 that's three zero people at a minimum yes yeah uh 30 people like uh, my 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 twitter feed was filled with various like business people that are that, that i follow kind of retweeting and discussing this over the past week or so because it's absolutely ridiculous that they've set a limit of 30 people as as the the baseline for it there are so few places that can afford to to hire that many people unless you're pret or you're one of those big corporate chains in which case what you're basically doing is they furloughed a load of people and gotten rid of a load of people so then you're basically saying okay well we'll get you to hire them back rather than actually making a proper attempt to boosting the, the the economy with this scheme again you're probably seeing the the somewhat shallow ideological and uh, competence pool that the uh, Johnson administration is kind of like pulling from when it comes to its membership of the of the government is kind of biting it in the arse again because you would almost certainly in any other conservative government have someone who sits there and has gone I've run a business think this through they probably don't have that at the moment. Uh, it sort of feeds in with the general sort of miasma of incompetence around the Johnson government. There's been a lot of bad headlines in a lot of the pro-Tory press, particularly on the economy, actually. Con home, Andrew Gimson uh, didn't have anything positive to say about Johnson's PMQ's appearance, but, I don't, but on Wednesday, but I don't suppose even Johnson's mother had anything particularly positive to say about that. No. That's the fourth horseman, but this, the economy horseman, um, I don't know what he would look like. I'm, I'm kind of picturing Adam Smith with a mace on a horse. It, it, it's Adam Smith and, K- and Keynes kind of like battling each other on top of a horse. That sounds like a remake of Hamilton or something, doesn't it? That would be. Uh, I mean, have, have you not seen the um, Keynes and uh, Hayek rap that's online? I think you have made me watch it at some point. Um, <laughs> times eroded the memory. But there's a few re- briefings against Rishi Sunak in some of the pro-Tory papers, so in Sun and in the, in the Telegraph and the Mail as well. 
one of them saying that he might end up increasing national insurance contributions for self-employed, one about a hike on fuel duty, which is the first time that fuel duty increased for about 10 years. That was always a, a bit of a staple, wasn't it, of the, the Osborne budget um, to try and keep yeah. hold of their, their electoral coalition. Um, yeah, I think they constantly referred to it as like stopping the fuel, fuel duty escalator. Mm. Um, where it was automatically going up. And I think they did a similar thing with like, tax rates on, on beer for, for a number of years as well and, and, and certain spirits. And also um, the fact that there's been briefings about how the British government is still going to keep its foreign aid budget at 0.7%, which is angered a few Tory backbenchers for reasons. Um, and also there's been a few briefings saying that Rishi Sunak is um, considering tax hikes as well to pay down the deficit. It does feel like there's a little bit of a briefing campaign going on against Sunak and a lot of people quite uncomfortable with some of the economic measures the government might have to take. Even, even some unnamed Tory MPs criticising Eat Out to help out and not even for the name. <laughs> uh, <coughs> Michael Gove. Uh, just because, you know, Michael Gove will be running for the leadership again and Sunak's probably one of his big competitors now. Oh, are we actually... Have we not recorded too much to start indulging in idle speculations about how long Boris Johnson's got? Although this... I haven't speculated in ages. Like I've got to get it out of my system. <laughs> Let's use this as the segue into the third sort of yeah. incompetence bit. Dominic Cummings' dad. No, it's his father-in-law. Um, yeah. who, of the castle that he went to, or, or, to break lockdown. Uh, protocol wasn't it but one of the things he said to, to this random member of the public this is great isn't it you can just sort of stroll up and get secrets from inside government said that um, he was considering standing down in six months which if true is an absolute shocker but would kind of make sense step aside from all the politics of everything as he, as, as you say Johnson was severely ill in ICU. He's got a new kid. Like we know that long COVID is a thing that affects people like over a longer period of time. Throw in the fact that being prime minister isn't an easy job, even in the most kind of like normal and positive of conditions. You can easily see how how somebody would come to the conclusion, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I've been ill. I've got a family. Let's let's try and get to a point where it's possible for me to step away. That would not surprise me in the, in the least. The issue, though, is I'm not necessarily sure how much of that is actually true. It strikes me as the sort of thing where I could imagine Dominic Cummings kind of floating that as a, as a thing and in discussion over dinner with his, uh, with his in-laws and then taking it as being read. Johnson's not been having a good time. That's, that's quite clear. Honestly, I think his performance has been getting worse as, as, as time's been going on. So you can certainly see that in PMQs. The start of Starmer's leadership, like there were a couple of poor footings from, from Johnson, but he was kind of able to get it back to a point where it was like 50-50, no real winners, no real losers. It was just standard PMQs. Comes back after the, the uh, summer vacation, well, not vacation, summer break um, and, and recess for Parliament. Has an absolute disaster of, of, of PMQs, where he tries to accuse Keir Starmer of being an IRA sympathiser, despite the fact that Keir Starmer's helped prosecute the IRA and has got a, a really long and very pop good track record of being able to show that. That's uh, through, throughout years because he was head of the CPS. He was just literally attacking Starmer as though he was Jeremy Corbyn. Kept on going back to, oh yeah, but you, you, you oppose Brexit. And it's like, we're not talking about Brexit, uh, Johnson. We're talking about 
something completely different. We're talking about the, the, the failure about um, education uh, and, the, and the grading algorithm. This is something that you were meant uh, were all right at. And now you just seem to have completely and utterly slipped down. So something is, is, is happening. Either the job's just getting to him and he's just not uh, as capable, or maybe he is ill. Ill uh, maybe he is more ill than, than people, uh, people are letting on. I think there's a couple of things. On the specific PMQ's point, I think Keir Starmer's got better. Johnson hasn't found a way of attacking Starmer yet. So those PMQs towards the end of the last term of parliament, as you say, it was about 50-50, but generally because Johnson was able to find a line to a, a question to attack Starmer and just ask it repeatedly and not get a response. So I think with Johnson, it was about schools opening and Johnson saying to Starmer, you know, will you say if you want people's back or not, which sort of got a little bit of, yeah. of traction. And there wasn't really anything like that because, I mean, Starmer said in the Daily Mail, he expects all pupils to be back no ifs, no buts. Yeah, yeah. So, and he, he, he literally said, my kids have been are going back, so... I think also Boris Johnson just doesn't put in the work, and we know this. You've seen it when he was questioned as Foreign Secretary, you've seen it when he was questioned as Mayor of London, we've seen it when he was questioned by the, the, the Liaison Committee, I think, of all the different heads yeah. of select committees, where Boris Johnson did not know fundamental points of detail on areas that relate to his brief. So it's not surprising that he's not able to answer these questions. I mean, the line of attack they had on Starmer was that he was some sort of Remainer lawyer, but I'm not sure that's going to work because actually lawyers probably are seen as more trusted by the public than politicians. So it seems a weird thing to say. The Remainer thing doesn't really work now. Brexit sort of not as big a political divining line as it was now that... Yeah, the... especially when, the, when Starmer's approach is basically saying, well, you said you'd get us a deal, so get us a deal. Hmm. Like he's not he's not opposing the government in that sense. He's let he's letting the government hoist themselves on their own petard because if they don't get a deal, well, there's they're they're kind of screwed because they failed by their own by their own standards. Yeah, and that brings us to the fourth horseman, I suppose. And the other thing is that Johnson's losing a lot of the support of his party as well because of this long degree of U-turns. So you, you've got the I'm just going to list them rather than talk about them. You've got the free school meals, yeah. you've got U-turn on the Huawei, you've got the fact that medical uh, practitioners were going to have to pay for a visa and now don't have to, U-turn on the algorithm, just to name but four. And what that means is not only does it sort of lead to an, a reputation of incompetence, which can be quite hard to shake once you've got it, but also it means if you're a Tory backbencher, you probably aren't really going to want to go and bat for the government on television or radio to defend the line because you don't know if the line's going to change in a day or two yeah absolutely and at the same time as you've got this um you've also got the um, government detailing showing its priorities by rather than looking to try and make meaningful changes or, or put the work in in advance they're talking about and briefing about how they're going to have like a um, a war room with giant screens with live updates of data to help to help with the uh to help help pull through like data for for coronavirus or education or or, or whatever else it is that they're, they're, they're trying to want to look at in at any given point, and it's just not a good thing to be doing because they talk about live data, but there is no live data when it comes to coronavirus or or education or things. Oh, and if there is, 
you'd need a giant IT facility which connects up every single kind of region of the UK to central government. And one, don't have a good track record of centralised kind of like IT projects in general. And two, that takes so long to get sorted. So what is the purpose of this war room? What is the purpose of Dominic Cummings having an action centre where he can stand in the middle of it and have data flashing up in front of him? And it's like, that doesn't help you. It doesn't fix anything. It's just literally so that you can pretend that you're being productive because it sounds good. Because if you think about it, this is like the next step of what the um, government has done for its um, kind of approach or anything. Whenever an issue has just gotten so uh, kind of like too problematic, they've run a story that says Boris Johnson is personally taking control of this. It's been happened on so many things now that Boris Johnson is personally taking control of this. And it's like, well, one, you're the prime minister. You should have been in some capacity in control of this anyway. And two, you've clearly not been because none of these issues have been resolved. So now, rather than Johnson taking control, we've got a war room. We've got an action centre. We've got something which uh, sounds really, really good, but achieves nothing. It does seem like a bit of wish fulfilment, doesn't it? I don't know if you want that. Almost you want some somewhere between a city trading desk and a bond villain's lair um dominic cummings thinks he's in minority report like he thinks he's going to be it's surrounded by like giant springs where he can just kind of move things around and like pull up live data sets and it's like no mate they're just going to produce a google data dashboard for you bunk it on a screen and then every a couple of hours they'll update the data and it will show up on the on the graph does that make gavin williamson a precog uh, no, it means uh, if the government would like that service being entered in for them, I would ha- happily volunteer my business to do so because we do that for clients. It's standard. I don't think <laughs> it's not exactly the only good business to their mates. I think you, you probably need to go this is true. First, this is very true. I suppose the, the, the shtick with Boris Johnson has always been that the idea was that he would be chairman of the board and therefore yeah. you delegate. You know, it doesn't want to get involved in the details because that involves you know reading stuff. And paying attention to detail so you delegate to ministers and they do stuff and then you step in and take control as you say and the problem with that is you don't have ministers who are good enough to do that with with Williamson and the exams it looks the the education select committee put out a report in July saying we've got issues over the algorithm and nothing was done Boris Johnson comes in to take control is just a publicity stunt. There's also, before we go, so we've talked about the incompetence bit, the evil bit is, is the sort of the general attacks on civil service, the ab- abolition of Public Health England, the talks now to abolish the Electoral Commission, which we will talk about, but we're running out of time. Speaking of running out of time, Steve, Brexit. Oh, God. Um, we don't. Yeah. So we've already talked for, for a long time, listeners, and we don't want to try your patience, and we do want to do a proper episode at some point, I will force Steve to talk about fish and state aid and all the other things that they're struggling to come to a deal with. I suppose, I think two or three things to say, um, which I'll sort of rattle through quite quickly. One of them is, it's incredible that one of the sticking points appears to be on state aid and the ability of the government to provide state aid for services. You've almost got this sort of horseshoe theory of Brexit now, with the same arguments that were being made in Tribute magazine um, by Jeremy Corbyn supporters about why Labour should support leaving the EU. Um, and now the same sort of arguments being made but out of number 10, which is incredibly bizarre. 
Um, second thing is, it's not just a deal. There's so much other legislation that needs to get passed. There's an agriculture bill. There's a fisheries bill. There's an immigration bill. There's a trade bill. There's a UK internal market bill. If a deal is put through, that needs to be ratified by the UK government, uh, UK parliament as well. Now, admittedly, Johnson has a majority of 80. He's going to have a much easier ability to get legislation passed than Theresa May ever did. But still, that's a lot of legislation that will take up parliamentary time. And the other thing is, Tony Abbott, why are you appointing Tony Abbott? The only thing Tony Abbott is known for being is useless. Right, like when you look at the, 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 the names of the people that have been uh, appointed to the, to the Board of Trade, like two stand out to me. Um, one's Tony Abbott and the other's Dan Hannan. Both of these appointments seem to be almost like more signalling. Like, I don't want to use the word virtue signalling, but it's, it's like, the, like an equivalent to that. It's like, hey, we've got these people right-wingers that you really like. You've got Tony Abbott, who's incredibly religious, um, gets defended by the likes of Tim Montgomery for his interesting views um, on concerning things like women and uh, homophobia. But then you've also got Dan Hannon, who's like hailed as the you know the free marketeers thinker in in the conservative party when when, when he's not but uh, so it just kind of they're, they're, they're symbolic uh, appointments of, of people that i'm sure someone in government thinks they are actually going to be really good at the job but the reality is they're not there for that they're there to make uh, make the border trade look like it's going to be a right-wing project from the get-go um, rather than it being just another quango or just another thing which um, the woke left in, of the government can and the secret Marxists that inhabit all of the quangos and the BBC and all of those sorts of things, stopping them from taking it over. Tony Abbott doesn't know anything about trade. He's already said in public yeah. events he doesn't know anything about trade and he left it to his trade minister, which is fine because their trade minister was good. Yeah. But it's also the fact that just he has not got a good track record of being competent. He's like the shortest serving like Australian prime minister, I think ever. And he kept on trying to become, become leader of the liberals in, in, in Australia again, which are the, the right wing party down there. And they kept on saying no to him because they know he's bad at his job. And he lost his seat in an election where most seats swung liberal, but he had a massive swing against him because his constituents, anyway. Again, the culture war is more a pony of doom, not a horseman of the apocalypse, because a lot of it is manufactured, like the prom stuff and Royal Britannia. And it's just, no one actually is talking about this stuff. It's just Boris Johnson likes talking about it to show a sense of outrage. We should probably talk about Brexit later. Um, maybe, uh, because we haven't talked about it now, maybe we'll talk about it on our Patreon page, Steve. Yeah, maybe we will. If, uh, if you were interested in finding out what goes on to our Patreon page, you should head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne, wherein uh, you can throw us a few quid every month and you'll get access to uh, unique content, um, which we put up for our, our champagners, um, as we, we're calling them, uh, which no one else gets to listen to, we'll see. Um, you'll get access to early content, you'll get access to unique blogs, um, lots of different things like that. So uh, head over there, check it out, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to join in the uh, thriving discussions that are happening. Our website's notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. 
Uh, James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Plucky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. Uh, I'm at Acoustic Radical. Starting.